Welcome to the Control Room Podcast. I am here with my man Stillers. How what you up? doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, man. So um, thank you first and foremost for being a part of the Control Room Podcast. I want to, you know, get to know you a little bit more, even though me and you've been rocking together probably about, I would say maybe five, six, seven years, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. It's been a minute, man. We worked on a lot of stuff together. Yeah. Um, over time, we worked on a project for Switch. Uh, me and you've definitely cooked up. We've done some high standard shit, like in the beginning of my producer career. Um, so thank you for everything that you've ever been a part of as far as my musical journey. Um, I want to dig, you know, deep into your story way back when. How did you get into audio engineering? How did I get into audio engineering? Uh, I think it all started with, you know, one, having all sisters. Uh, Interesting. Me too. My father being an electrical engineer, uh, big into music, big into records. Uh, and he just started with like, you know, turntables and guitars, not really know what was going on. And then me just taking shit apart. And I, that was the big thing is the technical aspect of it, getting software. Uh, I think I inherited like a, uh, they called him my uncle, but he wasn't my uncle, it was just my dad's friend, but gave me a Mac, uh, had some crazy, uh, like DJ software on it where it was like just these two like turntables and you just click kind of like beats and stuff. And I kind of started messing with it and it kind of evolved from there. Um, and then uh, you know, it escalated in high school where I was doing that. And then, by I mean, there wasn't, like, much hip-hop stuff. It was, like, all, like, heavy metal bands, like, hardcore punk bands, like, where I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, like, the band The Misfits was from there. Like, so, it kind of brought that scene. And then, like, as I was in high school, nobody was really recording. Uh, I grew up with one of the really big bands from there. It's a hardcore band called Folly. Uh, I was good friends with a lot of kids that were in the band. And uh, I got an M-Box. And so, I started doing all the demos at my house. Dope. So from one year of planning to go to culinary school and getting a scholarship, it turned to not going to culinary school and going to Full Sail. Talk to me a little bit about Full Sail because I attended Full Sail myself. And um, you said you attended Full Sail around 03, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, Full Sail, yeah, it started 2003. Uh, it was kind of a last-minute decision. I just, like, within, like, six months, I started just doing demos for bands in my bedroom with an M-Box. I do scratch guitar track with a metronome. And kind of just go from there and just do like programming drums. But uh, I knew right away that it was something technical and I was very big into music. So that's something I wanted to do. I played guitar too. Um, so yeah, I went to Full Sail, kind of went down there not expecting anything. How did you find out about Full Sail? Like, was it advertisements through the mail, some shit like that? Yeah, well, and then like also there were some other schools. Like, there was like the conservatory school in Arizona, but it was like a big waiting list. Uh, I could have tried to go out to Berkeley and play like, you know, tryout for like that, but I was just more. I didn't really want to have to, like, I didn't want to have to play Autumn Leaves to try out for fucking jazz school. Yeah, It just you. wasn't my thing. I, I was a technical, and I, like, I just, you know. You just wanted to go to, like, a trade school just to learn the trade and, and kind of be more familiar. Because those other schools that you mentioned, like, Berkeley and shit like that, um, that's, like, traditional colleges. And so it was you, a lot more money, too. Yeah. yeah I, knew, I knew I was going to have to pay this shit back. There's so. that as well. Uh, yeah, so I went to Full Sail. Um, it was kind of interesting. When I, went to, when I went to Full Sail... I don't live with any Full Sail kids. Like, I had to find a place last minute. So yeah. I moved down to, like, by University of Central Florida. Okay. So when I moved there... It's, like, initially down the street from where Full Sail's at. Yeah, where it's, like, with other big schools. And then, like, what was funny is, like, all my roommates were, like, four or five years older than me. Uh, so they were all, like, going to school for business degrees. They are all, like, in their master's program. And I'm this, like, 18-year-old, you know, kid from Jersey. Uh, so that was an interesting aspect. But Full Sail was dope. I mean, it was cool just to, you know, you had the late-night classes. You had lab. You know, that was the fire part about it. Yeah, I mean, it was dope because when you got your work done, like especially like 
when I went, it was MIDI Lab. We were running Logic. We were running Logic Five, and you had like Triton Rack. You had the you know Motif Fat. You had all this dope like keyboard emulators. And so it's like you got done with your work, you just got to f- work on tracks. So there was a lot of cool producers that I like. You know, I went to school with. Um, it was a lot of older kids I went with. I was probably one of the younger kids in my class, but it was a good experience. During this time, it was like all analog gear, right? They, you guys weren't really introduced to Pro Tools. You didn't? Did you have a rig um, somewhere in the lab? Yeah. So what we did what was a uh, they had a couple like oh, so we had like Sony SoundForge. We had like an Acid Pro lab. Oh shit! Yeah, throwback. Yeah. And then um, I started on Acid Pro. The bigger like. Uh, I think the first analog class we were running on Soundcraft Ghost, which is pretty cool. It's a pretty cool console. Uh, running a couple, like, uh, they had, like, some Avalon stuff. It was just cool to just start tweaking on shit that I could never afford. No, uh, definitely. That was the best part about it. You, It was like a fucking dream, bro. You would walk in, and it was like, that's what college should be, in theory. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, it, it, you should want to go to class. Yeah, and it's like, you know, like, your brain, you just, like, you know— you're in class so much and there's like so much lectureship, but then your brains it starts unfolding this whole entire thing. And it was like the big thing is like I always remember drilling my head was like signal path. So I remember literally in my apartment bedroom, I drew out the whole signal path in like Sharpie marker. And I know if I if I remember this shit, any console I touch, That's I'm eventually gonna get that pattern down. hundred percent. Even take console and analog gear aside, there's still a, a form of signal path within the fucking dolls that we use. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Like for sure. With Pro Tools Logic, it's the same shit. If shit's not working, there's a reason why it's not working. And if you follow the signal path, you could fucking find the solution to it. Yeah. That's dope, man. Um, all right. So when you after attending full sale, right? Um, did you start like interning at any any places or did you have like a goal in mind what you wanted to do after full sale? Yeah, I mean, I had I had a goal when I went to Full Sail. So uh, there was a studio in New Jersey called Big Blue Meanie. Um, I knew about it when I was in high school. A lot of my favorite bands at the time recorded there, like a lot of hardcore bands, a lot of metal bands, a lot of old school New York hardcore. Uh, and as much as I was into hip hop, I was into a lot of other stuff, especially right. like where I grew up. So, you know, I started interning there while I was in high school a little bit. And I told the, you know, I told the owner like, hey, make my parents happy, go to school and come back. So sure enough, like, I think the following year and a half, I came back. I started interning. Um, so, yeah, Big Blue Mini uh, was large facility in Jersey City, New Jersey. It used to be called Quantum Sound. It was Andy Wallace's main uh, studio where wow. he mixed at. So uh, Jeff Buckley Grace was done there. Uh, Evil Empire was mixed there from Rage Against Machine. Uh, That's Chris, crazy. Chris Cross did all the records there. Chris Cross? Yeah, Queen Latifah. Queen Latifah used to live down the street. Um, and then my boss, that uh, he bought it in, like, I think, 99 and then became, like, a big facility. It was 8,000 square feet. So, uh, yeah, interning there was great. I mean, trying to think. All of us had nicknames. So, obviously, you know, you already dropped my nickname, Stillers. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to ask, how did you uh, get titled the name Stillers? So, first day at the studio, I remember it exactly. I, w- I was working construction at the time because I had to make some money. So, were you Stillers prior to going to Full Sail, or you became Stillers after? Stillers after. Okay. Yeah. Circa 2004, 2005, probably around there. Uh, so, yeah. So, I would work construction in the morning. I'd work, like, a f- I would do, like, 6 a.m. till about, like, noon, right? I would do, like, roofing, whatever, carpentry, whatever they need me to do. And then I would just go down. So, when I started, it was, like, I still had to work that day. Went down there. Did, like, you know, you know mop the floors, whatever. And I met this guy, this guy named Phil. And he was, like, working on his 
ex-wife's record. The record was his band called Queen V. She did like a stuff with Guns N' Roses stuff, but um, and like one day like they came up like a, like that day they called me up and like oh you know we got a nickname for you look you know you know in Pittsburgh they don't say the Pittsburgh Steelers they say the Stellars you know <laughs> and you look like a Pittsburgh steel worker so uh, I'm still called that to this day and um, still best friends with that guy Phil. Um, so yeah, that's amazing. Cause I've known you so long and I didn't even really know the true story behind why they call you Stillers. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, that's, like, that's dope as fuck. Yeah. A lot of people, I mean, I'll run into people in the street and be like Stillers and people are like, how the fuck they call you that? So the Phil that you met at this studio, fast forward to maybe like 2014 when you and I started working, is this the same Phil that owned the studio that you and I were working out of? Yeah. Awesome. So yeah. Uh, describe to everybody listening the feeling of when you walk into Phil's room, the control room that he has in uh, Midtown. Uh, I would say uh, cluttered chaos. Yes, but there's a certain aura to it. And the reason that I ask you is because the first time I walked into it, I was like, damn, man, this is like a creative heaven. Like there's things hanging from the ceiling. It's all different kind of just knickknacks everywhere, like toys and shit. Yeah, and sidekick. Like, yeah, but still within all that shit, there's like expensive ass gear. There's, oh yeah. There's like dope ass compressors and like EQs and reverbs, all kind of crazy shit. Well, I mean, and then that I think we were talking about this actually the other was I talking to you about the other day? No, I was probably talking to somebody else, but the evolution of working with this guy, Phil, was the crazy thing because I don't want to make it too long-winded, but when I was working, when I was the intern at the studio, you know, he would like he was working on this record, and it's my first experience. And he's driving a BMW Z8. He's driving like you know a '65 Mustang, like wow. all this crazy shit, and like just having like you know he never, he would never pay us. We never got paid, but he always had some fire ass weed, and he'd just hook us up, <laughs> right? And then like, I'd be like, what is going on? And then like you know, eventually when I started working for a while, it turned into like. Hey Stillers, we're gonna go work at this studio upstate in Massachusetts for like two weeks. You want to come? And I'm like, yeah. My my driving. He's like, no, we're gonna take my plane. And I'm what like, the fuck, take your plane. And I sure enough, sitting in the sitting in a little Cessna, freaking out because Phil was flying, smoking a joint, drinking wine. Wait, he was flying the plane himself? Oh, yeah, he's a pilot. Or he was what a pilot. What the fuck? <laughs> Yo. So. I didn't know this. Yeah, so. Uh, like, I mean, this was like one of like the like many things that would come up, and I'm like, oh shit, okay. So I went there, and this like this studio is called Longview Farms. Rest in peace, Longview Farms. Very prolific, uh, like residential studio. Uh, like Rolling Stones worked there a bunch. They have a thing called the Barn. Um, very amazing studio. So I got to work there for two weeks. Got to learn a bunch of shit from a bunch of different engineers. Um, so that was like one of the crazy adventures. But then like yeah, so like stopped working with them for a little bit, but then I came back. Um, the studio in Midtown that we, that me, you and I worked at, I rebuilt that studio twice. Wow. Why? Uh, uh, Phil's a little crazy and we got like some new gear. So we got that wonder bar console. Um, we got a bunch of new outboard gear. So it was wiring everything up to EDAC connections. Uh, you know, I did a lot of the technical stuff as far as like soldering patch bays and stuff like that. Wow. Um, taking that full sale learning into use. Yeah. That, that, it was like Hunter Menning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what was that guy that wore the crazy jacket? Yeah, was it Hunter Menning? Yeah, yeah. We had to do that whole. We had to make the mic cables and shit. Yeah. Telodogram. Oh my god! I we used to have that. so many catchphrases and shit. There was the angry redneck guy too that taught that class. Oh yeah. I remember though. I mean, I remember this one teacher at Full Sail, and he was like so funny because he was teaching. I think it was like first session recording class, 
And this guy would get, I think he was wasted every day in class because he'd be drawing on like the, the dry erase board, like all these different like diagrams of like, you know, like polar patterns and shit. But he'd be like stressing in class. So he'd wipe it with his hand, but then he'd wipe his face. Lord. <laughs> so he would have this guy like. <laughs> Mark all over his face. Thinking like whiskey, just marker all of his face. Well, yeah. Lord. But yeah, back to Phil. I mean, Phil, uh, I learned a lot from him. Just working at that studio, kind of made it my own, you know. It was, I mean, we worked out of there for years. I mean, no, I mean, we made, like I said, we made Switch's album in there. We've worked out of there a bunch of times. Um, the sound is great in there. The gear is great in there. But that feeling of like that creative heaven that I speak of, man, like it's hard to just explain into words. You know, I try to show people pictures to kind of show them, but it doesn't know justice. No, nah, it doesn't know justice. Like it's crazy shit just hanging from the ceiling and it's great. Random like quotes, like, What's the yeah, one? Get a job loser. Get a real job yeah. loser. <laughs> <laughs> so inspiring. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of weird shit like that, and it's just like, it was just like his, his sense of humor and like what he like his approach to engineering was like. There's no rules, which there is none. No, and it's just like do you what know, sounds good. Constantly pushing the limit on what you feel is like making the artist more involved and what's making you more involved. It's dope. You got like all this early on experience as far as as far as like analog recording and you know working with outboard gear because a lot of engineers coming now they don't get a chance to touch any of that shit. You know what I'm saying? So to mm-hmm. be able to come from that background and be able to adapt now in this like digital age is dope because you can incorporate both. Yeah, and I find that super fire. Um, so when did you get into engineering hip hop? Because you did make, like, a sort of transition. You was working on a lot of rock stuff before, and then you come in, come in of the age where you start working on hip-hop stuff and producing. So it actually, like, so, so it's not so much engineering hip-hop, but when I got more into doing even more hip-hop production, you know, I was engineering at Big Blue. I was working on a lot of, like, rock stuff. I was doing a lot of, like, shit tasks, like dupes from analog tape and stuff. So at night, I'm like, how can I get better at, like, being Sonic? So... I didn't like I didn't play guitar enough where I was gonna record it and work on it. I was just making beats. Right. So me at the studio, we had we had a, a room. You, you, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you were making beats in order for you to get better sonically. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing, bro. That's how you started in production, just so that you would get better at engineering. Well, I mean, I always did. Like, I would always mess around making beats, but it took a little more serious once I started working at Big Blue, and I had like you know I had a twenty five hundred. You know, and I had a turntable and it, I... You rarely hear this because most times you hear of, like, producers becoming engineers because they wanted to make their beats better. But you went from engineering to producing because you wanted a sonic sound and you wanted to get better at that. I need something to practice my engineering That's skills fire. on. That's fire. Yeah. That's so, dope. like, I mean, what's better than, like, chopping up samples, filtering stuff? Yeah. You know, stuff like that. I mean, so that's how I did that. Um, shout out to my boy, 911 from Big Blue. Me and him worked together for a long time. Uh, we had a room in the studio. It's called the Bat Cave. It was a tiny ass little room in the basement of the studio where the lounge was. Uh, and both of us are tall as shit. And uh, <laughs> the ceiling in that room was only like six five, so me and him couldn't stand up in it. But uh, I'd say for a good like four or five years after like working twelve hour days, me and him would just chop up records, work on stuff, and then me and him kind of incorporating more of the hip hop stuff into the studio. And then you know once we earned our cred there and we got to start putting on sessions. Uh, the boss just gave us free reign after after midnight. Any studio is yours. You book it, whatever you want to do. I remember I did a remix for Ill Bill and Necro uh, out of that studio. I did a bunch of sessions with like El Desensei. Um, a lot of like underground stuff, but it was still good exposure and like 
Yeah, there's nothing more fun than recording hip-hop vocals on analog tape. I'm just going to tell everybody that right now. That is true. I've never done it, but I can only imagine. That feeling of punching the tape in? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I've i recorded a couple times on tape, but it was never hip-hop. It was always like when I was in Full Sail doing like a rock band or whatever was in, uh, whatever band was in there to get free studio time for students to record them. You know, you know what it is? It was just a certain type of uh, uh, attention, attention to detail, but like... When you're recording vocals on the analog tape, it's like, okay, like, especially like really fast stuff, call and answer stuff is like figuring out how you're going to lay out that architecture on the tape because you're not going to move stuff digitally yet, you know? Here's a question for you. Um, Would you prefer working out of a studio that's entirely analog or a studio that's digital based? Like if you had one option. What am I, am I tracking or am I mixing? Both. You're going to be tracking and mixing the song in the same session. Hmm. I would say, uh, depending on the art, I mean, it's hard because I would say there's so much like factors. Like the biggest thing with analog that sucks is recalls. Yeah, definitely. You know, so it's like, I mean, we have our phone though now because we could just take pictures of them of the. Yeah, the I mean, you could do that. Here. It's not like back in the day where you had to draw that shit on paper. I would say, for the sake of what I enjoy doing, I would say analog. Okay. Because I still, I, I can still, I still know I know how to do a lot of it, especially like recording drums, analog, all that stuff is just like, there's, there's an energy there that you don't really get from looking at a screen. It's true. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, it's, it's, once you get to do it a lot, like I did, you know, it was like, there was a process and it was a lot more involvement than just like arming tracks and like and I'm not gonna I'm not shitting on like DAWs and people like, you know, like it's the it's the future, you know? It's but the now. If you get if you had the chance to do it, I think anybody that does work in the digital domain, they would really enjoy it because that that artistry and engineering was developed by doing all that stuff in analog originally. Yeah. You know, it was just kind of like a necessity. Hand, hands on uh profession. Yeah. Well, I think it was a hands on profession. Yeah, and it was like, you know, it was a necessity to, like, move forward with digital. And that's why I think a lot of, like, the, you know, uh, older guys, I'd say, like, people like my boss, you know, grumpy bastards will always, like, say, like, oh, analog till the day they die. But they had to slowly progress to start using digital as well. Yeah. Just for speed. Yeah, well, I was, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to mention that. So, um, speed definitely takes a big factor into, you know, the analog versus digital argument that most people have. Do you feel confident in your ability to work on analog gear as quickly as you could run a session on a digital rig because i know for me since i'm not you know working with the gear day to day it would take me a little while just to like remember the patching and like you know working with the 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 board or whatever it is i would say how good are the players i mean that's gonna factor in yeah uh with analog uh i mean your your uh, musical abilities really have to shine in analog too, because when you're tracking like, you know, when you're tracking like death metal records and they're playing at 215 beats per minute, and you're just doing these like crazy like palm muted chugs, like you have to have just as good timing as that guitar player to punch in and stuff. Yeah, definitely. You know, so it's like, I would say like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, I would say yeah, digital is probably faster in some aspects, but because you can manipulate the artist's performance yeah. pretty quickly. Uh, and once you get good in digital, you can fly. The the evolution of being able to manipulate 
on a digital rig, like as far as like what a musician plays. So like, let's say a drummer is playing something that the timing is just off and you could just nudge it within the program. That wasn't like that before. So it's made the engineer's job a little easier. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, too, I think it's diminished the quality of artistry because now artists could just rely more on their engineer to nudge that instead of working to perfect and get that perfect take. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would say like a lot of it, like, I mean, on bigger records that we did, you would still find ways around that. So we'd have a whole system like you would do. Uh, you know, on on analog tape, what do you got? Sixteen fifty. On if you're running thirty ips, uh, so it's like you probably get like you know you have like seventeen minutes of recording. So, I mean, you could do a couple takes of drums, and then what we do is a big thing. What we do at Big Blue is uh, we do like two takes dupe, right? And then let's say for instance that song like the, in two takes they got it, whatever. We'd edit it, and then if we were still recording on analog, what we'd do is we'd sum like create like a sum mix, like a drum mix back down to tape. So you do kick, snare, uh, rooms, mm -hmm. right? And you just have that on four tracks. That way, you know, on mic plot on analog, you're gonna have what I mean. If you're not going crazy, you'd have like thirteen mics, right? Yeah. But so one to get the track out, the you know the track allocation back to what you wanted fly in, do back, and then start bass, you know? It's crazy how we evolved because now you could just record each track individually. And it's yeah, like... yeah. Also, too, um, don't you feel like with analog, when you were micing up the drum tracks, got a lot of sound leakage? You saying like bleed from yeah, one mic to another? Yeah. Yeah, but there was like, there was like certain tricks you could, I mean, that's that was the cool thing is like... Would you, you run everything through a gate first, like before you were recording it? sometimes we would uh like a lot of things like people would think like to do like like that one thing we never really did was like people would mic bottom of the snare i never fucking did that shit we, yeah. never, we rarely ever did that shit because you just want that top yeah and it's yeah. just like some things like you know you'd get some you get the most problematic mic for me with like a lot of times was a hi-hat yeah you know or it's just it's funny because like you have to just pay attention to that shit like you know like if a mic moves or like you know Throws everything off. Air conditioning changes the heads on the drum kit. Like, you know, it's all shit I had to learn. After working out of uh, Big Blue Studio and working, you know, um, closely with Phil, did you then start freelancing? Is that how you started getting more of the hip-hop records, like, in New York City? Yeah, I mean, I started, I mean, I did start freelancing while I was at Big Blue. So I was at Big Blue from 2004 to 2015. Not completely full-time, because I needed to pay bills. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't like, I would say a lot of the guys I work with, they were able to like, you know, sleep on the couch and like, you know, like their parents helped pay their student loans. Like, yeah. I didn't really have that position to do uh, that. You have more responsibility. I have responsibility. I was just, I was, I was very passionate about the craft, but I also was hungry to make sure I had enough money to eat and to like, you know, take care of my car and do what I did. Now, mind you, when I worked at, when I first started at Big Blue, Big Blue's in Jersey City. I lived in Sussex County, New Jersey. It was about an hour and 15 minutes. And wow. I did that commute for a couple of years. Uh, and then I just became the resident couch sleeper. You know? That's the grind, bro. That's the grind. Sleeping on the, you know, or you got, a, you got like a blanket on top of the pool table. Uh, and we all did it. Um, but yeah, I was freelancing in Big Blue for a while. I was doing stuff out of there um, because I, I was working a day job. I was working at, well, it wasn't a day job. I was working at Apple overnight with you. Yeah, um, shout out to Apple. Well, uh, shout out to the people that we met at Apple. Yeah, shout out. There's so many people at Apple. Yeah, we, uh, well, I still work with a lot of Apple artists to this day. 
Yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. That's true. I mean, and like that's the thing is it's all relevant. I mean, who's like we got Teddy, yeah, Teddy, Hans, yeah, Tommy Versailles, um, Switch, Switch, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of people, man. So, I mean, working at Apple overnight, it gave me a lot of room to like on my days off because you know we had four days in a row, we had three days off. Yeah, so we I worked go- overnight too. On top of that, fucking so, not never sleeping, grinding. Yeah, so. Uh, the insomniac, uh, you know, trait comes comes along with it. So like, I would I would have a day off. I go to Big Blue. I book a session at midnight. Pff, rock until eight in the morning, you know. Yeah. Um. But then also it was like balancing because I was doing engineering work, uh, there. But then also like in my free time, I wanted to do some production work too. So I had a little setup at home. I lived right across the street. I'd come in and mix stuff at Big Blue. I was working at a Phil Studio, uh, doing a lot of stuff there. Um. Then I did a bunch of other random shit. I started record. I played. I you know, I helped MD a wedding band. Like I, I was, wow. I was doing all the sample chops for the wedding band. I was doing like uh, a lot of podcast or not podcast recording. I would work for this one guy. He'd do like Forbes, like like Forbes events, mm-hmm. and they had to pre-record all of their audio introductions and stuff like that. So I just randomly record that. Uh-huh. Well, that's the cool thing about being an audio engineer because you're actually an engineer, right? Like, yeah. so you could get booked for other gigs. That's not necessarily you know, music driven. Like I, right now, the current job that I have, um, I do sound for like auditoriums and things like that. You know what I'm saying? And that's nothing music related, but my music degree also let me get a job like that. You yeah. Know? It's so. like, uh, you know, that technical, I always like think back on like why I got into engineering and like music and all that stuff. And it was a big thing of just like anything that's technical, I absorb. I mean, look at me right now. I'm like, I'm like, uh, kind of like director of IT for a media company. Right. So it's like, not all the time I look at that shit every day and be like, damn, this is my dream job. No, it pays the bills and it enables me to like have that freedom to go home and like work on music and not worry about anything. Yeah, definitely. Because at the you end know? of the day, you just want to work on the music. So it's bigger than just it being a main profession rather than a way of life. You know. Yeah, and then I would say like freelancing. Uh, I did it a bunch, and then I, you know, man, I even worked with you on a bunch of stuff. Definitely. Uh, you know, I, I think at one point I got burnt out with the, you know, uh, I think, you know, certain amount of us that are in this industry have a certain, uh, we apl- we we bring passion to what we're doing, and I think a big thing for me was get working with a lot of artists that weren't really, they it it seemed like they have passion, but like you were caring more than they were. Yeah, like. Like have a little bit more, like invest in yourself a little bit more. Don't don't just keep on ripping YouTube beats. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. If you really want to invest yourself in, you, like some of these people were talented. Like work with a producer, pay a producer what he's supposed to get. You yeah. know, because just buying something online, even this pulling something from YouTube, you're not gonna get that. You're not gonna get that experience, and you're not gonna get that like just that energy from working with somebody else. Well, I mean, it shows in the end result. You could tell what artists were just grabbing beats off of YouTube and making songs like that and what artists were actually being conditioned by producers and engineers and the team in the studio making these records, you know? You could definitely tell the difference. Um, All right, I have two more questions for you, buddy. All right. First question. Uh, Give me a session that you had that felt like a life-changing scenario. And then give me a se- the worst session you ever had. A uh, session that changed my life. I think. It could be any sessions early on, like just a, a, a session or a moment that you had where you were like, damn, yeah, man, my dreams are coming true. Uh, Probably, I'm not going to say one session specifically, 
but a period of time working with one producer. I, I worked with a producer named Sal Villanueva. Uh, he was a big time. We worked on a, like a lot of the old emo bands, Take Mech Sunday, Thursday. Um, I would just say in that seven-year period that I worked with him, um, you really get to just understand of how much this job is customer service. Definitely. And creating that environment and making sure artists are comfortable. Um, There's a big psychological aspect when it comes to music, just like being able to work with somebody, you know? Yeah, and it was also nice being an engineer when you bring like a, uh, you bring a musical idea to the table and they're like, that was a really good idea. We're going to do yeah. that. So like vocal and production, stuff like yeah. that, like vocal melody, stuff like that. You know, I was working on emo music, like, you know, like little punk ass kids from like California, you know? So it was like, we're writing vocal melodies, you know, uh, some of these bands had per diems are coming from Australia. So it was like, it was just cool. To, I think just the energy of meeting new people was a big thing. And like everything else fell into place as far as the technical stuff, learning, like learning how to manage a session, stuff like that. Um, I would say probably one of the biggest nightmare sessions yeah. was like a funny thing that happened to me that like at the end of the day, I was an engineer job and it got something got fucked up. So I was working on this band from New Zealand called the bleeders. They're a punk rock band from New Zealand. Um, we just transitioned from one room to another. We finished doing bass and studio big, at big blue mini. Uh, we had a, uh, at the time we had, we were running a Neve Mozart desk. They always had problems. Um, and then we moved to another room where we had like a, a Mac big. Okay. Um, so I was setting up guitar sounds for the, uh, well, we were setting up guitar rigs to get guitar sounds. And, uh, what do we end up using? Um, so on that record, we ended up using a Yamaha T50, which is actually a Saldano amp. Um, it was before Saldano had those amps. Um, so we use a Yamaha T50 and we were using an SM7 on the cabinet and some other like SM57s, whatever. So I get sounds, I dial in sounds, I'm using like a JCM 800, using a, uh, what else were we using? Um, Ampeg B55. It's like a bass amp, but you can use it for guitar. It sounded pretty good. I might be butchering the model name, but um, yeah. So I got sounds, everything dialed up, uh, had the guitar player a couple play a couple tracks, um, you know, and then I had, you know, producer come in, boss come in, you know, check him sounds. He's like, oh, it sounds great. You know, don't, don't do anything. So create a recall sheet for each guitar player, each of the tracks, so they're double tracking. So got into mixing, got into like actually tracking the record. Sixteen songs. It's a punk rock band. You know, I get into like I think by like day five, I'm like eight songs in, done with guitars, doubles, leads, all that stuff. So at that point, one of my roommates was actually in the other room in Studio A, doing mix prep, and he was getting guitar tracks or whatever, and they started mixing one or two songs. I said so. uh they started mixing one song. They usually start like, uh, usually out of Big Blue, we pick one song out of the the lot. What was the hardest? And mm. we we create the you know the mix like Smart. the mix, the foundation right yeah. for all the outboard gear, and then get a basic recall. So how do you determine that? Uh, usually, um, our big thing was like complexity, um, or like uh, track architecture. Um, sometimes bands go crazy with keyboards, and you just kind of like you kind of figure out what is a good song overall as far as like dynamics in the record. Mm -hmm. uh, so like usually we'd go for a, we would go for a song that has the most dynamic swing between like, you know, really soft melodic parts and then going into really heavy parts. So we usually start there. So got guitar sounds. They started mixing everything. Everything was good until a day later. Day and six. Day six. My boss comes in. He's like, Oh, Stellars, what the fuck is up to the guitar tones? I'm like, what do you mean? Like 
it's the same rig that we had, whatever. So trying to figure out and like I'm going back, I'm bypassing stuff on the desk. I'm like, what, you know, I don't like, you know, and he's like, what's going on? He's like, I don't hear it at all either. So he's like, all right, let's go look at the rig. So what we used to do is we had like a elaborate process for mic and guitars as far as like, you know, you had the cabinet, you'd have two boom stands a little bit higher than the cabinet. You drape a blanket over on an angle, right? Uh, and then we also would have like uh, bean bags on the, on like the, on the mic stands. Uh, and we used to like, you know, every session we would do sweeping. So it didn't matter what speaker you chose. You always like, we always had a go-to one and we'd sweep. So somebody would be in the control room and... Uh, we'd have the guitar player play, and so we we have like an intern in the in the live room. And once a guitar player stops, you stop moving the mic. Mm-hmm. So I had the intern at that time stop moving it, and locked it down. So it turns out when we took the blanket off, the mic stand broke. Oh wow! So the little collar piece on an SM7, you have an SM7? Yeah, I have one here. Right. So the little collar thing broke for like the actual like the the uh, to give it its axis. So when we picked it up, the SM7 was just leaning on the cabinet. So it was just getting low end rumble, you know, but like since we were monitoring with EQ and everything, we couldn't really, that room wasn't, and that room wasn't really designed acoustically well. So we couldn't really tell we were playing loud, you know, we were tracking guitar. So yeah. So it sounded fine when you were tracking, but then you realized on the playback. Once they got into mix, they were like, like he started, like started ripping an EQ and stuff. They're like, what the fuck is going on? So you know, I guess like my boss was pissed off a little bit, whatever. It was kind of like I mean, the producer was fine with it, but so the next day I came in, I banged out, I banged out all eight tracks that I already did in the in one day. The next day, just to make up for that, just to make up for it, because I had to stay on time. It was on yeah. Universal Records uh, wow. in New Zealand, um, so we were like on a very time crunch. Um, but yeah, that was like one of the biggest things. Other like other like shitty things I had to do. I remember, I remember one time in a studio, I got in a fight with one of one of the artists. I was working with some, like, he was this asshole hip hop artist, but just got too wasted in the studio, started running his mouth at interns, kept it cool, tried to keep him on calm. Then he starts spitting on the floor, spitting on the walls. Nobody was at the studio but me. So it's just like, you know, you, sometimes you just have to take actions in your own hands. I, I don't understand why people get like that, especially in the studio. Like, yeah, but why are people always spitting? Like <laughs> spitting, throwing up. Like I've cleaned vomit as an intern. Like I just don't understand that shit. Oh bro. yeah, I mean I've that. I mean that's the thing is you have all the crazy experiences. You do you, you get you know you get plotted in a drug pickup. You get all kind of shit. Yeah, right? man. At one point I was like underage trying to get liquor for an artist that I was working with, and it was like, what the fuck? Like how am I even gonna get this shit? Yeah, but I mean, bad sessions happen. You learn from those sessions no, more than definitely. anything. Yeah. Especially when shits. Fu- so, and like that's the thing is like gear will always fuck you nothing's perfect mm-hmm. like I just remember like I remember one day we were oh I was working on this I was working on this project called Secret Chiefs 3 and uh, I forget the, uh, there was a guy from the band called Mr. Bungle he's I don't know he's popular or whatever but there was all like crazy world musicians like all these like intricate people playing like weird like didgeridoos and all kinds of fucking shit I never mic'd up before so it was a cool experience so the one bass player put on his he put on his headphones, and I guess like somebody didn't like redial down the Q amp, and the fucking Q amp in the outside rack in the little foyer the the Q amp blew up, Whoa. like literally blew up, caught on fire, and it sent like a it fucking blew the headphones out, and he came out screaming saying we ruined his hearing and all this shit, and I was like dude look it's on I mean it's on fire, 
It's crazy. So it's like you know, it's just like how to deal with those situations because some of those some of those people are just they're very delicate. They work in sessions a lot. They think that you know a lot of them do a lot more sessions than we do. So it's like you just have to like figure out how to go like how to like really deal with the empathy of it and like shit this goes wrong. That's crazy, man. Well, um, I appreciate all the stories that you gave me today, buddy. Uh, anything else you want to plug or say? Um, you want to drop your social, social media, Instagram, Twitter, all that shit? Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Stillers. You'll see me posting random shit, music, work shit. And follow this guy, man. If you need any engineering work and you're a pretty dope up-and-coming artist, holla at my guy over here. He'll take care of you. Stillers, thank you once again, buddy. No Appreciate problem, you. Man.